Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS uh, Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. Uh, with us today is Nader Hashemi. He's the Director of the Center on Middle East Studies at the University of Denver. Um, Nader, thanks for joining us on the show. Happy to be with you. So you've been doing a lot of research on uh, on Iran and on the nature of politics in Iran. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing that you think is really interesting about the course of, of political engagement and, uh, the, and inside of Iran today. Well, I mean, the first observation is that the Islamic Republic of Iran is approaching its 40th anniversary in a couple of years. And so a lot of um, uh, changes have taken place in the Islamic Republic of Iran that I think uh, raise serious questions about um, the political legitimacy of the regime in power. The perception that many people have, and the regime itself tries to promote this, is that it's a regime that has a lot of base support. When it has elections, it sort of has respectable voter turnout, uh, sometimes in the 80%. Um, it seems, at least from a distance, that this is a regime, um, like other authoritarian regimes, that can sort of draw people around it. And I think the, 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 there's a lot of truth to that. But I think at the same time, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the Islamic Republic of Iran, as it approaches, you know, year 40, is suffering from a deep crisis of legitimacy, that the regime has come out and almost said this explicitly, and that um, the biggest threat that I think the regime faces from its own sort of statements, its policies, is really the threat that it fears, like other authoritarian regimes, from its own population, its own society, and groups that want political change. So what does that mean, a crisis of legitimacy? Uh, how would you know? What, and when you say that the regime has explicitly said yeah. so, I mean, what do you mean? How does it say that? Well, um, you can just, uh, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that one can cite, but just in terms of um, the social behavior of large segments of the urban middle class, in terms of how people live their lifestyles, there's a huge chasm between those lifestyle choices that people adopt and pursue in the privacy of their own homes and the official sort of model Islamic citizen that the Islamic Republic of Iran has spent almost 40 years trying to cultivate and produce. And so just to take one example, about a year and a half ago, it was announced that the uh, Ministry of Health of the Islamic Republic of Iran has established 150 alcohol treatment centers in the city of Tehran alone. Now, that might not seem like it's a big deal, but if you think about what that actually is suggesting, you know, this is a country where the consumption, sale, trafficking of alcohol is explicitly banned. They've tried to cultivate a citizen that rejects that type of um, behavior, consuming alcohol, a lot of money, investment, schooling, education. But 37 years after the revolution, you have a situation in the capital city where alcoholism is a major health issue. And the regime has had to sort of deal with this and acknowledge that, you know, the consumption of alcohol has risen to such a high level that you need 150 sort of treatment centers just to deal with it. That suggests something profoundly, I think, illuminating about the crisis of legitimacy of the Islamic Republic of Iran that 40 years almost after the revolution, many people have completely rejected the policies, behavior, prescriptions of the Islamic Republic of Iran, whenever they have a chance to, you know, make independent choices mm -hmm. in the privacy of their own home and communities, they make choices that are 180 degrees different from what the official narrative of the regime is. Now, that doesn't, that's not everyone, right? But it's large enough to suggest that, um, um, that large segments of the population simply do not buy into the narrative of the regime. 
um, and you know prefer to sort of make choices that are very different from what the ideological narrative of the Islamic Republic would want them to pursue. Now you've been following this for a long time. How does this compare to say like the 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 the, the era of the student movement in the late 90s. Um, we heard a lot at that time about a generational change yeah. and you know this rising generation of highly educated, independent young Iranians. Is what you're seeing now different or is it more of a content continuation? Yeah. No, of I that? think it's part of the same story. It's part of the, um, um, the, the sort of the, the reality of Iran that after the revolution, large segments of society, not just urban middle class, but young people, educated segments, want political change. And to the extent that there's an opportunity to pursue political change, um, they have seized upon it. So the case that you mentioned in the late 90s um, and the early uh, 2003, there were two major student protest uprisings. Universities, you know, under um, the first and second term of President Khatami were relatively open spaces. Students could organize, mobilize, and there were major clashes during those moments. The regime tried to crush them, but we've seen that every time there's been a political opening, some space um, for people to express themselves, usually revolving around national elections, where the regime wants to encourage a greater voter turnout. It rolls back the scales of repression. It allows people to come into the streets. And you see people saying things and uh, believing in things and pursuing policies that are um, almost diametrically opposite to what the official narrative of the Islamic Republic of Iran is. And um, uh, that, I think, is very revealing that um, uh, that the regime knows that every time there's an opportunity to have a free and open debate, people start saying things that are, you know, at odds with the official mm -hmm. position of the supreme leader and of the guardian council and of the ruling clerical elite. Um, and there's a lot of other evidence that I could sort of point to that are very illuminating um, and that we just talked about a moment ago. But for the sake of the podcast, I would, I would just recall that, you know, um, Iran has had several presidents um, that have served two terms in office. Two of them, Hashemi Rafsanjani and Mohammad Khatami, um, were people who were officially excluded from um, running again as presidents um, for the Islamic Republic. And that's, that's actually you know, quite revealing if you think about it, because Hashemi Rafsanjani was Khomeini's right-hand man. He was one of the most influential and powerful figures. He served as president for two terms in the 1990s. Uh, in 2013, when he tried to run again, he was officially banned by the Guardian Council. And if you stop and ask yourself, why was that the case? Why was the Guardian Council and these sort of leader, clerical sort of leaders of the Islamic Republic so fearful of a two-time president? The reason was because after the 2009 elections and the protests that took place, Hashemi Rafsanjani basically sided with the aspirations of the protesters and the people. And there was a deep fear that if this person comes back into the presidency, he's going to be in a position of influence that could start to loosen the stranglehold that the clerical oligarchy, particularly the hardliners, have over society. More um, in the same vein is the, the case of Mohammad Khatami, the two-time reformist president, who in uh, January of uh, 2015, it was announced, the Iranian judiciary announced that Mohammad Khatami's picture and his words can no longer appear in public. Any publication that quotes him or publishes his picture will be fined and banned, and it's a criminal offense. At the recent funeral of Hashemi Rafsanjani, Muhammad Khatami was banned from participating in the funeral. And so that raises the question, why? And my interpretation is that he's a very popular figure. His reformist policies, particularly among the youth, urban class, educated segments, and his you know principled defiance of the established hardline um, uh, order in Iran won him a lot of support. 
And the regime fears that if he's allowed to speak publicly, if he's allowed to meet with people publicly, that would generate a certain momentum for political change that then can't be stopped. So all of these things, when you put it together, you sort of clearly see a picture where the regime realizes that their popular support is very narrow. It's narrowed considerably with every passing year. I think the 2009 Green Movement protests and the crackdown narrowed the regime's base of support to a much smaller base. And they're very fearful of, you know, what may happen if we sort of allow things to, you know, go unchecked. Um, well, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, how would you interpret kind of the, the, the longer-term impacts and legacies of that 2009 moment? I mean, how do Iranians talk about that today, and how has it affected the way they engage with the political system? Um, well, I think there's a, a deep sort of uh, moment of, a sense of despair that there was a moment of opportunity for political change. The regime hijacked the election. They cracked down, and um, that was an opportunity that was lost. Um, now there's a sense of apathy, disillusionment, that I think the regime has deliberately tried to inculcate. That's one of the strategies of authoritarian regimes. You try to sort of send a message that if you resist the established order, the price is very heavy, just continue on with your jobs. Be happy that we've preserved political order. The other, I think, sense in Iran that we have today in terms of looking back on the Green Movement protest and the desire for political change is the regional context uh, that Iran finds itself in. And that regional context has been deeply shaped by the um, chaos and the aftermath of the Arab Spring, particularly in Syria, also in Iraq and Afghanistan, the sense that the regional neighborhood um, has uh, imploded. And those people who've demanded political change in Syria, in Libya, look what the result is. And there's a sense that, look, maybe we were a bit naive in trying to push for political change. As bad as it is in Iran, at least there's relative political order. And so the regime has sort of inculcated that sentiment. And also, I've spoken to a lot of people. There's a sense that, you know, people are having these second thoughts that maybe we were pushing too hard too fast. So there's that regional context and the sense that, look, you know, we may be living in a repressive state and our demands for political change haven't materialized, but at least we haven't descended and gone down the path of a Syria or a Libya. And that's the nightmare scenario. Whereas back in January, February 2011, there was a lot more excitement about it. Exactly. There was a lot more aspiration. In fact, you know, um, in January, February of 2011, that was two years after the, um, the Green Movement protests began. And there was a lot of excitement. There was a sort of a sense of energy and a hope that as this sort of movement for political change was sweeping across North Africa and the Middle East, it would come to Iran. And in fact, it did come to Iran because in early February of 2011, the leaders of the Green Movement um, called for a national protest in solidarity with Tunisia and with Egypt. Uh, they were denied permission to have an official protest, but they still called people into the streets. And it was immediately after that moment when the leaders of the Green Movement were officially arrested, put under um, a house arrest, where they remain today, and then they were officially branded in the regime's narrative as um, co-conspirators with external powers, uh, getting money from the Saudi regime to sort of foment political change, and uh, officially branded as, quote, seditionists who committed a high crime, and if it wasn't for the grace of the supreme leader, they would have been executed. Um, and so every year, actually, what you have, um, there's this one moment, it's called, it's, it coincides with roughly December the 30th, where at the height of the Green Movement protests, the regime sent their supporters out into the street. There was a major clash. 
Um, and every year that clash is commemorated in the Islamic Republic as the moment when we stood up against this wave of sedition by the Green Movement protesters who were trying to subvert the Islamic Republic and slogans are shouted against Musavi and Karubi and his wife who were, you know, e you know, portrayed as evil figures. And, you know, a lot of people say, look, the Green Movement is over. It was just a, a momentary event. Nobody cares. Well, if that's the case, why almost every week in the Islamic Republic does some senior official raise the specter of the return of the Green Movement who might come and subvert the Islamic Republic. Literally, almost every week, you find some senior official in some way, directly or indirectly, trying to um, portray the specter, this haunting sort of scenario of the Green Movement with what they call the seditionists coming back and subverting um, you know, law and order. Is there any way to, uh, to judge how much uh, residual support or sympathy there is for the Green Movement? I mean, I imagine there aren't a lot of surveys or that sort of evidence. It's very but. difficult because, you know, there's some people who say, well, look, you look at opinion, opinion polls, right? There's these pollings that have taken place by respectable polling agencies at the University of Maryland. I'm very skeptical of that because this is a red line for the regime. Mm -hmm. If, you know, someone gets a call from a pollster in Washington, D.C. or in Europe saying, well, what do you think about Ahmadinejad or the Green Movement? people are not going to speak their mind because they don't have the opportunity to speak for us. It's very difficult in an authoritarian regime to measure. But if you look at just political trends, for example, political trends that led to the election of um, Hassan Rouhani in the election, look at what was taking place at his campaign rallies, the mm -hmm. slogans, the promises that he made. In fact, Hassan Rouhani runs in 2013 basically on a platform for political change, officially calling for the release of the Green Movement protesters. And this is actually an ongoing issue in Iran because people are saying, look, you're coming up for re-election. You promised that you would release the Green Movement leaders. Why haven't you done so? And, you know, unfulfilled promises. So it's difficult to gauge, but I think if you sort of look closely at um, um, people who've been arrested, why they've been arrested, what takes place at uh, official funerals like Hashmi Rafsanjani's funeral, which is another moment where people came into the streets and, you know, um, you know were shouting defiant slogans. Um, you look at just the sentiment of young people, and then you just sort of think about the nature of opposition politics in a revolutionary regime that's been in power for almost four decades. The nature of opposition politics is that it gets constructed and portrayed against the established narrative of the regime that's in power, which is Islamic, which is republic, which is authoritarian. People are you know, forming their, their opinions. Um, and the other sort of piece of evidence that I think is un, you know, reported on or studied is a lot of Iranians have left Iran for uh, Europe and the United States over the course of the last four decades, but recently over the last 20 decades. Um, um, if you look at those communities, their political behaviors, their sentiments, um, the lifestyles that they live, it's very different from what the Islamic Republic. And so the point that I'm trying to make is anytime Iranians are given the freedom to make political choices, lifestyle or um, political you know, expressions of opinion, it's almost uh, directly opposite or very different from what the official narrative of the Islamic Republic of Iran is. So all of that, when you put it together, it suggests that this is a regime that um, suffers from a crisis of legitimacy. It knows that it doesn't have you know, a lot of popular support. In fact, the Supreme Leader on two occasions has publicly admitted that I know there are people in this country that don't support our nizam, our system. But please come to the polls and vote for the sake of the country, even if you're opposed to the political system. So that's sort of a public acknowledgement yeah. from an authoritarian leader that, look, we know there's large segments of the society who don't support us, but we still want your support nonetheless. Do you get any sense at all that uh, the, the war in Syria is proving to be uh, a, a negative 
for the regime? Is this seen as something which is popular or is it something which is seen as this kind of irresponsible foreign adventure? I mean, what, what is the current state of uh, the Syria debate in Iran? It's, it's a great question. One, the question of Syria is a red line. So anyone who sort of stands up and tries to say something critical of the regime is immediately branded a traitor because Iran has invested heavily in Syria, not just in terms of, you know, money and arms, but over a thousand Iranian soldiers, revolutionary guards, and several senior commanders have been killed. Um, and the regime has tried to sort of portray its intervention in Syria um, as a fight against al-Qaeda and Islamic extremism. It's a choice, um, and there's no other third option. And it's also tried to sort of rally um, uh, the nation around the flag of sort of Iranian nationalism, um, and particularly Shia symbolism and mobilization, the mobilization of sentiment, particularly of poor Shia constituencies in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq to go to fight has been structured around a narrative of these radical Wahhabi Sunnis are trying to destroy the sacred shrines of uh, Shia Islam, and we, you have a moral obligation to come to the defense of your religious heritage. Hmm. Now, of course, the irony of that narrative is that all of those Shia shrines are located in the Damascus area, but all of the fighting isn't taking place in northern Syria, near the, in, in Aleppo, um, where there are no Shia shrines. Um, so the debate within Iran, I think it's, it's polarized. One, you can't talk about it internally because it's a red line, but there have been um, I think quite a bit of um, voices of support, particularly among Iranian expats who have tried to mobilize to support the Syrian refugee crisis, who've expressed opinions uh, against Iran's intervention, such as Iran's Nobel Peace Prize uh, laureate Shirin Ebadi, who's been very outspoken on this. Um, but for many Iranians, I think, who don't know the specificities of the conflict in Syria, they are very prone to fall into this narrative that, yes, you know, it is a choice between Assad, who's a dictator, and then Al-Qaeda, who's much worse, so better to have, you know, the dictator that we know and that's the support. So there is this nationalist narrative that I think has captured the, um, the hearts and minds of, of, of many Iranians. But any time there's a chance to sort of um, explore this and have a discussion and debate, just recently in the Hashmi Rafsanjani protest, uh, Hashmi Rafsanjani funeral that took place, when people were passing in front of the Russian embassy, there was death to Russia slogans that were shouted, and the interpretation was that was because of Russia's policy in Syria and Iran's alliance with Russia, which people don't like, both for historical reasons, but also because, you know, Russia is viewed by many Iranian um, um, intellectuals and students as an authoritarian regime that's backing and sustaining the authoritarian regime that's ruling over them. So there are these, you know, you know indications that suggest that, um, um, that there's a lot of discontent um, and there's a lot of opposition, but it can't be expressed because internally the, the boundaries of debate are very narrow within Iran today, on, on, on the question of Syria in particular. Well, great thing. So we've been speaking with Nader Hashimi, uh, University of Denver Center for Middle Eastern Studies. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank you.